The reading for today's sermon is from Hosea chapter 14. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Hear now God's holy word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray together today. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for your holy word. What a beautiful passage this is for us to come to here at the end of our study of the book of Hosea, what a great declaration, proclamation, exposition of your divine love for us, Father. We pray that you will help us to understand. We pray that you will encourage our hearts. We pray, Father, that you will make us grateful for not only your word, but for your love and for you. And we pray that in that gratitude, Father, you would continue to cause us to flourish cause us to be fruitful in holiness, cause us to live our lives in ways that honor you and that proclaim you to be the worthy God who you are. God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We just sang, I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star, my son, and in that light of light I'll walk till traveling days are done. That is ultimately the end message of the book of Hosea, that we would walk with God in ways that please him and honor him till he's done. And it's preceded by that stanza in verse 2. I came to Jesus and I drank of the life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. This is all the message of the book of Hosea, that as God's people, we need to come to our God, and that as we come to our God, he refreshes us and he revives us with the, with the truth of his word and the power of his spirit and the goodness and the power of his grace. And in all of that, he causes us to be able to walk in ways that honor and please him. One of my favorite phrases in the New Testament scriptures is that wonderful little phrase that's found six times throughout the book of Hebrews and once also in the book of James, where the writers of those books exhort Christians, encourage Christians, command Christians to draw near unto God. Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a wonderful reality, isn't it? That, 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 that gives so much, so much comfort and consolation and hope whenever we're struggling in our lives as the people of God. To know that Jesus, who suffered for us, and so can imminently sympathize with any and every suffering that we experience, that he beckons us to draw near to him so that he can give us all of the grace and all of the mercy that we need in our time of need. That every aspect of help that we need is found in coming unto him. And of course, the, the real wonder of that reality is that we are able to do that. We are able to draw near to God in our time of need because God has already drawn near to us in our ultimate need. And that's what the incarnation was, right? It was the uncreated, eternal, almighty Son of God, the creator of all things, drawing near to us in creation, taking human flesh upon himself in that baby in the manger, in order to become our great high priest, in order to shed blood, his own blood, in order to make sacrifice for our sins, but by sacrificing his own life in order to redeem us and reconcile us to God. And then he was raised from the dead, and then he ascended back into heaven, where he now sits at the Father's right hand, continually making intercession for us, so that we can draw near unto him. So that having been washed, so that having been forgiven and justified and reconciled and adopted, we can come to God as our Father and open wide our mouths and say, Abba, fill us with everything that we need. All of the grace, all of the mercy for every need in our lives. We draw near to God because in Christ... God first drew near to us. And now that we've been made able to draw near to him, we're given this promise in James chapter 4, verse 8, that when we do draw near to God through faith in Christ, he will continue to draw near to us. That's such a wonderful verse, isn't it? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He won't turn you away. He won't refuse you. You sinned this week. So did I. You blew it. You fell short of His holiness and glory. We all did. You can draw near to God, confessing that sin and saying, Oh God, I need the grace to be able to be done with that sin. And He won't look at you and say, I'm, I'm done with you. He won't cast you off. He won't refuse you. He'll draw near to you and give you all of the grace that you need. In the context of that promise in James chapter 4 and verse 8 that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. The context of that promise that's made to Christians who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, the context is repentance. When you sin, what you need to do is to come to God even though it's probably the scariest thing to do, the hardest thing to do, the thing that you feel unworthy to do the most, the thing that you feel ashamed to do the most. You need to come to your God in repentance and He will give you all of the grace that you need. So that, that command, draw near to God, coupled with that promise, He'll draw near to you, it's a, it's a command to turn back to God whenever we've turned away from Him by sinning with the assurance that every time we do, he'll never, ever turn us away. He'll never, ever refuse us. Just like the prodigal son's father in Luke chapter 15. When the son finally came home, the father ran fast as he could out to meet his son, to embrace his son, to robe his son, to bless his son. And in that picture is revealed the compassionate, loving, 
gentle heart of God our Father. He hates sin, yes. He will always, as we saw last week in chapter 13, deal with sin justly, set every wrong right. One day he will eradicate all evil from this world, yes. And at the same time, God, who is unchangeably righteous and just, is also unchangeably and unfathomably merciful and loving. He longs for sinners to return to him, to come home in repentance and faith. And he longs for those who have already come to him through faith in Christ by his grace to continue turning to him day by day by day in lives of repentance and growing grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of that. God drawing near and our drawing near to God because he's drawn near to us in repentance from our sin and with the assurance of divine grace. All of that is what the final chapter of the book of Hosea is all about. And it goes without saying that since this is the great climax of the book, since this is the summit to which we've been climbing, divine grace for sinners who turn to God is what the book as a whole is all about. Don't get stuck in the middle and go, oh, it's all about judgment and I can't read any further. Always make it to the end where God says to sinners who are as sinful, as desperately wicked and fallen as described in this book, if you just come home, I will have grace for you. If you just return. So having taken in chapters 1 through 13 together, where those themes of sin and judgment are so profound and dominant, let's take in the ultimate chapter together here today where it is the unfathomable love and mercy and grace of God that are ultimate in his message to sinners. The final chapter falls out into three main parts. First, in verses 1 through 3, God pleads with wayward sinners to return to him, to turn back from their sin and from the way of sin, which is leading them straight towards destruction. He's calling them to draw near to him. And then in verses 4 through 7, God assures them that if they'll do that, if they will repent, if they will turn away from their sin, if they will return to him, he will heal them. He will love them. He will bless them graciously. So he's promising them in all of his faithfulness that if they will draw near to him, he will draw near to them in the fullness of his steadfast love and mercy. And then, thirdly and finally, in the last two verses of the book, verses 8 and 9, God simply points sinners to himself. Here I am. Behold the God who I am. Look at my goodness. Look at my glory. And he calls us all in verse 9 to be wise, to understand the great message of this book and our great and daily need to turn to him, to draw near to him, to walk in his ways, to be filled with the grace that he alone supplies to be able to walk in his ways. So look at the first section with me first, verses 1 through 3. God pleads for repentance. That's what return to me means. And then he also defines it for us. Praise be to God. He says, here's what it looks like. Here's what it means to turn away from sin and to return to me. And this is such important truth for us to understand and to implement in our lives on a daily basis. Verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So the key words are return and stumbled. Hosea has, has talked about turning before throughout this book. But until now, he's mostly been talking about Israel turning the wrong way all the time. Turning away from God. My people are bent on turning away from me, God said in chapter 11 and verse 7. And do you remember the very next thing he said in that chapter? In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11. You remember those astounding words where God opened up his heart and poured it out? 
My people are bent on turning away from me. But how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma or Zeboim, those cities near to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were swallowed up in the fires of his wrath? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. That is the heart of your God. Every time you sin, you think of those verses. They were bent on turning away from him, sinful in every inclination of their minds and hearts, like every sinful human being in Adam naturally is. That's what this word stumbled means. It doesn't mean an accidental kind of stumble, like the time I was working on my sermon late one Saturday night, and I was walking through the fellowship hall because I went to get something out of the refrigerator, and I didn't turn any of the lights on, and I didn't have any shoes on. It was in the middle of summer, and I was barefoot, and I was walking through the fellowship hall in the dark, and I caught one of the legs of one of the tables with my little toe and broke, broke it, not the table, my toe, and stumbled and fell headlong into all of the chairs. That was an accidental stumble that was caused just because I was being dumb. But there's nothing accidental about sin, about the stumbling that God speaks about here. All throughout the book, we've seen the deliberateness of Israel's fall from God's grace. They've literally thrown themselves into idolatry. They've literally cast themselves down into constant debauchery for centuries. The pride of Israel testifies against him, God said in chapter 7. They refuse to return to the Lord or seek him. The spirit of harlotry is within them, he said in chapter 5. That's what caused their stumble. A heart preference for idols. A heart preference for sin and worldly things instead of for God. That's what drove all their actions and and all their sinful deeds. That's what lies at the core of every human heart by nature. In their hearts, they despised God and refused to honor Him as God. But, even so, in spite of it all, in His inestimable grace, in His great unsearchable love, He would not give up on them. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? Even though you're sinning over and over and over and inciting my wrath, my compassion grows warm and tender for you. And so now, out of that compassionate heart, he's saying this word, return. And that's how you should take this word. Don't take it as being spoken in harshness by the Holy God. Don't take it as God going, hey, get back here like an angry parent. No, the word return is spoken in warmth and spoken in gentleness. God's pleading, come home. I want you to come home. I have a friend I went to college with, and he graduated with honors and was given a scholarship to seminary and washed out of seminary because he went back to the streets that he grew up on and got hooked on meth again in the middle of seminary. And one of our other friends who we all went to school with who became a pastor down in that area went to this man and met with him and he said he didn't didn't rebuke him, he didn't scold him. He just said, brother, when you're done with all of this garbage, come home. And two years later he did. He showed up at that man's church and he said, I'm home and I need grace. And he went and he finished seminary and he became a pastor at that church also and he became married and now he walks with God because he came home and he received grace. This is the heart of God here. Come home, God pleads with the same kind of longing that the prodigal son's father had for his son to come home. And the message of this chapter is that even if they come to him, imperfectly even if they come to him with a with a shallow kind of repentance he'll take it and he'll deepen it and that's an important message for us right just come 
And God will give you everything you need that you don't even have in yourself. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you with all of the divinely powerful grace and mercy that you need. So, the first thing that we need to see about repentance here is that it starts in the heart, inside, and it starts with the problem of broken loyalty to God. Here's how Paul spells out sin in Romans chapter 1. He says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by all human beings ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for not believing in him, for sinning against him. No one has an excuse for not worshiping and honoring God in their lives. No one can say, well, I just didn't know. No one told me about him because he did. He revealed it. He made himself known clearly by putting his invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature on display to be clearly perceived in everything that he made. So that apart from sin... Every human heart would look on the creation of God and long to know the God who made this world, long to worship him, long to honor him, long to serve this great and awesome God who made this universe apart from sin. That's what all humans would do. But in our sin, we suppress the truth of God. We hold it down. We don't want to submit our minds and our lives to it because we don't want to submit to him. For although they knew God, Paul says, Sinners know, but in their sin they refuse. Although they knew God, they would not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's where repentance has to start, see? Not just on the outside. I did something wrong. I said I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. It's got to start on the inside in terms of our heart's refusal to ascribe honor to God, to be loyal to God as the God who he is, to ascribe to him in our hearts the glory and the majesty that is worthy of his divine nature and eternal power. That's where repentance has to start, because that's where every sin starts. Every sin of, of mind, of attitude, of word, of deed, comes from a refusal to do that, to honor God. Every unkind word. Every selfish, unloving deed, every lustful thought or act, every selfish ambition, every overindulgence, every fit of rage, every greedy motive comes from a heart that refuses to honor God and live life in a way that is worthy of His great glory. So repentance starts there. It turns from dishonoring God to a loving loyalty to him, and then fruit is born out of that. Repentance doesn't just come from a realization of the consequences of sin and then a desire to avoid them. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's certainly not enough. Ultimately, repentance comes from a realization of the glory and the goodness of God and a desire to please Him, to honor Him as the God who He is. And that's God's ultimate message through the book of Hosea. Return to me, God pleads. Don't just stop sinning. Come home to me. Delight in me. Now, in the book of Amos, which was written at the same time and to the same people, Amos emphasizes the terrors of God's judgment in order to motivate people to turn from their sin. Here in Hosea, the emphasis is on the other side of the coin. It's the greatness of God's glory. It's the sweetness of God's grace that sinners need to turn to. And we have to hold them both together. George Adam Smith says it like this. He says, Amos cries, Turn, because in front of you is destruction. Whereas Hosea cries, turn, because behind you is God. Go back. Go back. That's where repentance starts. And then secondly, of course, 
from that place of inner repentance, of, of turning back to God in loving loyalty, from that must come fruit that is in keeping with repentance, just, just like Jesus exhorted the Pharisees in Matthew and in Luke. You remember what God said here in Hosea chapter 12? So you, by the help of your God, return. Go back. So there's the inner turning back to God and loving loyalty, which leads then outwardly to the fruit. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So the heart's turning from sinful desire, sinful ambition, back to God in loving loyalty to Him, reorients the life, both in reference to one another, other humans, other people, hold fast to love and justice, and vertically in reference to God Himself, wait continually for your God. And it's that second vertical Godward orientation of the repentant heart and life that is emphasized here in Hosea 14. And it's, and, and, and it's being emphasized in two ways, both a positive way and a negative way. Both start doing this and stop doing that. So the positive way in verse 2 is this. God says, here's how repentance works positively. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, say to him with these kinds of words, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. On the positive side of repentance, what repentance does, it returns to God, as we've seen. It comes home to Him in loving loyalty, and it pleads with Him. It pleads with Him with words, specific words, that come out of a heart of genuine desire, not just for God to remove His judgment against us because of our sin, but out of God-focused, loving loyalty, it pleads with God to take away the sin itself. Oh, God, take away my sin. That's how David prayed, isn't it? Psalm 51. Blot out my transgressions. Not just, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't punish me. Don't let me suffer. Most importantly, God, just get rid of this sin. I don't want it anymore. I can't do it myself. I need help. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. This is what the repentant heart does. Those are the kinds of words that come from a heart that has come home to God. And that wants to honor God first and foremost. See? True repentance doesn't just ask God to spare us the consequences that come from our sin. That's me focused. True repentance takes it a full step further in God-focused love and loyalty and pleads with God, Oh God, take the sin itself away. Wash me, cleanse me, purge me of it. Against you and you alone I've sinned. That's my biggest concern, not just about myself. I don't want to dishonor you anymore. Please change my heart and my life. Accept what is good, verse 2 here says also. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Again, David captures that same kind of sentiment in Psalm 51 when he prays at the end of Psalm 51 this. He says, the sacrifices of God, the things that really God is pleased by, are a broken spirit. And a contrite heart. Oh God, you won't despise those. So he prays, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifice. That comes from right hearts. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Here, God is saying, here's how repentant people pray to me. They say, God, accept what is good. That's the plea of the repentant, God-focused heart of loving loyalty. It acknowledges that what is good to God, what God wants, is a broken and contrite heart, not just outward works. A heart that loves Him. A heart that hates sin because it loves Him. And it comes to God and it says, I need that heart and I can't make it myself. I can't manufacture God. Please change my heart. 
You pray like that to God when you stumble into sin for Him to change your heart, to love Him more and to hate sin, to take sin away from you on the inside. In His great mercy, our Heavenly Father loves to answer the cries and the pleas of His children, especially ones like that. Especially ones like that. Not just, God, give me my daily bread. Not just, God, give me my earthly needs. Not just, God, take away my earthly trouble. But, God, take away my sin and give me a clean heart. He loves to answer that prayer. Even when you pray it out of a heart that's not clean and, and out of motives that are mixed and out of immaturity and weakness and feebleness, and God, make it stronger. He loves to answer and supply. So that's the positive side of true repentance. It's the runaway heart's return to God and pleading with God for the grace and power to be changed from the inside out, to love Him more, to honor Him more, to value Him above all else, which leads then to the negative side of repentance, what sinners need to stop doing, to turn away from. And this is verse 3. God, help my heart to say, Assyria shall not save us. And we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. For in the orphan, for in you the orphan finds mercy. The repentant heart that returns to God must turn away, negatively turn away from trusting more in earthly sources of security than in God. And that's what Israel had been doing. Turning back to God means abandoning futile hopes. Instead of trusting God for their hope, instead of trusting God for their security in this world, they put more stock in earthly alliances with, with earthly nations like Assyria and Egypt, political alliances, economic arrangements. And every time we do that, every time they did that, here's how it works. When you put your confidence and trust in worldly sources, that means you're leaning on worldly wisdom. And when you lean on worldly wisdom, it causes you to become shaped by worldly perspectives and desires and impulses. And that's what was happening. And that's what they needed to turn from, trusting worldly things more than God. What did David say in Psalm 20? Some trust in chariots and horses weapons of war, earthly things. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Israel, in Hosea's day, God's name carried no weight in their politics, in the earthly affairs of their daily lives. So how much does our hope depend on earthly things, on earthly rulers and governments? How much can our hope be shaken by earthly rulers and governments? Who is and who isn't in office? Who does and who doesn't have a majority in the House and the Senate? How much does our confidence, how much does our contentment, how much does our joy and peace rest on earthly things? Like the economy, like our health, like our bank accounts, like our retirement portfolios like what we see on the news every day. How much weight does the name of the Lord our God, who sits enthroned in heaven and sovereignly does all that he pleases, how much weight does he carry with us compared to everything else that we can see in this world? The repentant heart turns away from relying on worldly means of hope and comfort for security and peace and joy. And also, verse 3 the repentant heart turns from trusting in the works of our own hands. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. For them, that meant those, those graven images, those idols that they would carve, like we saw last week, that human hands made in homage to false gods. Instead of resting all their hope and confidence in the living God who made the human hands. Their graven images are equivalent to our materialism. 
to our self-reliance, to our dependence on our own accomplishments, our own earnings, the things that we can do, the things that we can achieve, the things that we can produce, the things that we can earn in this world. That's how the natural sinful human heart is wired, to put trust in what we can do, what we can control. How many times have we said, what is the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is control. I don't trust God as much as my own ability to keep the, the little ducks in the little pond of my life all in neat little rows. You know what God loves to do when you try to, try to live your life fastidiously like that? He loves to whip through your little pond with a hurricane and knock all your little ducks out of the row and say, will you start trusting me? Trust in the Lord with your whole heart is what true wisdom says, according to Proverbs 3. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him that He's sovereign and that He's good, and then He will make your path straight. But the natural human heart and its natural sinfulness doesn't do that because it doesn't trust God. Because it believes, like Adam and Eve in the garden, that, that there is more to be had in life doing things our own way by our own understanding according to our own desires and our own strength. So repentance, coming home to God, means recognizing that natural impulse also and abandoning it. It means saying, you know what, God, you know what I don't trust and what I don't want to trust anymore is my own way. So see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way, which is the everlasting way, Psalm 139. Help me, sovereign Lord, to forsake my own stubborn pride and all the ways that I insist on doing things my own way. So, positively, repentance means coming to God. It means pleading with Him for the grace and power to be changed from the inside out. Take the sin out of me and fill me with the love that I need to be able to love and honor and glorify you more. By, on the negative side recognizing and abandoning every sinful, prideful impulse to trust in the things of this world and in the works of human hands more than in Him, more than in His wisdom, more than in His works, more than in His ways. And summing up both sides of the coin, at the end of verse 3, it's this, the repentant heart is the heart that acknowledges to God in you, and you alone the orphan finds mercy. I'm not going to look for love. I'm not going to look for mercy. I'm not going to look for help anywhere else but you. Literally, you could read that phrase. In you, the fatherless finds a father's love. That's a, that's a really legit way to read the Hebrew words. In you, the fatherless finds a father's love. I'm not going to look anywhere else, God. I'm going to stop looking everywhere else. If you remember back to the very beginning of this book and how the, the, the story of Hosea all began with, with that broken marriage between him and, and Gomer and then the daughter that they had named Lil Ruhamah, which literally means no mercy or unloved. That's the name of the kid. But then God promised in chapter 2 to rename her Ruhama, she is loved. Because the God who is love is the God who is full of mercy, full and free for all who come home to him, for all who draw near to him. And mercy, by definition, means favor that you don't deserve, right? Blessings that you don't deserve, that you didn't earn. Our instinct is to think that if we didn't earn it, if we don't deserve it, especially if in our sin we've earned the opposite of mercy, then we have no business coming to God and pleading for mercy. That's how our instincts are wired. But the God who reveals himself here in Hosea and everywhere else in Scripture says, look, whoever you are, come. Wherever you've been, wherever you've gone, come back. 
whatever you've done, come unto me and I will give you rest. Because he is gentle and lowly in heart and will give rest to any and all who come undeservingly to him. Even if you're coming to him, you're drawing near to him, leaves a lot to be desired. Are you like me that when you really blow it and sin, you don't even want to pray because you feel unworthy and you don't know how to pray, and so you just say a few really lame words that are basically, God, I'm sorry, and I don't know, and I don't feel, just help. Those, he loves those prayers. Those are the best prayers. I got nothing. I need everything from you or the, or the prayers that honor him the most. Even when your repentance is lame, even when your pleading is weak, even when your motives are mixed, even when your sense of loving loyalty to God is severely stunted in your desire to abandon your prideful, self-sufficient sin, even when that's feeble, still, and all the more urgently, that's when you need to come to Him, draw near to Him, even when you're ashamed that you need to draw near to Him. Even when you're embarrassed by the way that you draw near to him, just do it. Just come to him. Just draw near because remember, he promises that if you will, then he will draw near to you in all your feebleness and all your weakness and lameness and all the imperfection of it and all the blatantly obvious reality that you do not deserve in yourself to come near to him. You don't even know how to come near to him. Just come because he promises that when we do, he will come running out to us like the prodigal's father and meet us on the way and robe us in our shame and claim us as his own and bless us with all the grace and the mercy that we need. All of it. And so in verse 4, God says, to all of those who will come back, I will heal their apostasy if they'll just come. Look, if you go to the ER because you've been horribly injured or you're desperately sick, right? You're laying there all broken and battered and unconscious and bleeding. Or you're, you're there and you, can, you can't even breathe. You're having a heart attack. You've had a stroke, right? They don't say, you know what you need to do is go. You're a mess. Get out of here. Go home. Pull yourself together. Get well and then come back and we'll help you. That's not what the ER's for, right? They're there for the ones who cannot help themselves. Those who are well don't need a physician, Jesus said in Mark 2. I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. So our God is the one who says, come in all of your sin, in all of your brokenness, in all of your inability and lameness and guilt and shame, just come and I will heal you. Don't try to heal yourself enough that you feel worthy of coming and drawing near to the Holy God. Don't, don't, if you've been in a horrible car accident and you're bleeding from everywhere in your body, don't go home and go, I got to fix my hair and put on my makeup so that I can look pretty for the doctor. It, if you try to make yourself worthy to come before God, you'll never come. You just come and throw yourself in all your shame and all your weakness and all your pride and all your spiritual poverty and apathy on the free mercy and love of God. And he says, I will heal your apostasy. Apostasy means unfaithfulness. And that's a, that's a spiritual disease that you cannot cure by yourself. It's incurable until God heals it. And he says at the end of verse 4, my anger has turned away from them. If you'll turn and come, you won't find me angry. You'll find me merciful and eager. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, is the faithful promise of Jesus himself in John 6, 37. Draw near to him, and he will not unleash his wrath on you. He will not cast you out. He will not condemn you. He will heal you. Because in his love and compassion, he has turned his wrath away from you. And he's beckoning you to come 
And, and, and there in verse 4, sandwiched in between these two awesome statements, I will heal them and my anger has turned away from them. Sandwiched in between is this awesome, amazing, life-altering, paradigm-shifting reality that the God of all creation, the judge of the whole world, is the one who says, I will love them freely to any and to all who will come any and all who plead with him to wash them and remove their sin and change them from the inside out, he says, I will love them freely. So this is the God who says in Isaiah 55, you don't have any money? Come, buy and eat without money. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You don't have to pay for my love, God says. So this statement that he will heal whoever comes, that his anger is turned aside from whoever will come because he loves freely everyone who comes to him. This is is one of the purest expressions in the Old Testament scriptures of what the New Testament calls grace. Grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of your own doing. It's the free gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. Well, in our sin and in this sin-cursed world, we're not, we're not used to that. We don't, have a, we don't have an analog for that. We don't have a reference for that kind of free love and grace. We're, we're not used to being loved like that. We're not used to loving like that. Because so often it's all about earning love, Right? It's all about performance. And our instincts all say that, that, that we can't receive love if we underperform and that you don't give love. You're not supposed to give love to someone who doesn't deserve it. God does. God does. He loves freely. And when we come to him undeserving as we are and receive the fullness of his free love, that free love absolutely changes us, transforms us. When we draw near to him, even though we haven't earned the right to do it, even though we're terrified, even though we're ashamed to, he draws near to us, not in his righteous wrath. He draws near to us in the fullness of his free love, and he sheds that love abroad in our hearts, and that divine love and grace causes the most fallow, dry, dead, unfruitful, sinful human heart to become watered, to become rich with the nutrients of his mercy and righteousness so that it then begins to bear fruit for God. This is how it works. Fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Look at the expression of that in verses 5 through 7. And and just listen to how absolutely beautifully and poetically the God who loves freely describes the the harvest that his love and grace produces when it's shed abroad in the hearts and the lives of those who turn to him, who draw near to him. I will be like the dew unto Israel, and he shall blossom like the lily. They They were dead. There was no blossoming. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots will spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like like fields of grain. They shall blossom like the vine and their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. You know what the word for that is? It's revival. Individual, personal revival. Not because of something that you tried to do, but because coming to God and saying, I've got nothing and you've got everything caused you to be filled with his free love and and it watered and fertilized your heart and your life started to blossom and become fragrant to him. Revival. To take something that is dead and lifeless and spiritually fallow and make it teem with abundant life. This is what God wants for sinners. And this is how he does it. 
and he pictures it here in these, these verses 5 through 7 so vividly in, in three, I think, distinct aspects, this, this revival that his love causes in your life if you'll come to him. He speaks first of the dew that he will be to Israel and of the fragrance that they will become to him and of the, the beauty of the fruit that will come from them. For, for lack of a better word, he's describing a, a freshness. A freshness that his free love and fatherly mercy causes, which replaces the, the deadness and the rancidness of, of sinful human hearts and minds and lives. If they'll come to him, he'll refresh you. And then secondly, he speaks of being rooted like the trees of Lebanon. Those were big, tall, famously very, very hearty cedar trees that endured the worst kinds of storms and that survived the wildfires where all of the other trees and plants succumbed. They stayed strong like, like mighty oaks, like our redwoods maybe. He's describing a, a robust stability a steadfastness that his free love and fatherly mercy establishes in the lives and minds of hearts of those who come to him. You'll be able to endure the hardships of this world without falling if you'll come to me. You'll be able to make it to the end where there will be no more suffering and every tear will be wiped from your eye and you'll live in perfect peace and righteousness forever if you'll come to me. And then thirdly, he speaks about plants that flourish, their, their shoots are spreading out, their fruit is multiplying. So he's describing this, this growing vitality, this growing vigor, this, this, this growing prolificness of fruitfulness that comes to characterize more and more and more the hearts and the lives of those who will come to him. A growing, growing vigor and, and vitality. You, you don't plant a tree, a fruit-bearing tree, and then tomorrow it bears you a bunch of fruit, right? It takes some time. You keep watering it, you keep fertilizing it, and as it grows, you keep nurturing it, and, and it begins to bear more and more fruit. That's the, that's, the, that's the life that God will nourish. Shoots that spread out over time, fruit that multiplies over time, not all at once, and even sometimes not very much at first. You remember when you first came to Christ? I do. It was a mess. Still a mess. Really a mess when I first came. Over time, though, those who draw near to God on a regular basis and receive the rich nourishment of His Word and His mercy and His grace, they become more fragrant. They become, they become more steadfast and stable. They become more fruitful in righteousness as they flourish more and more in the presence of His righteousness and his love, and his grace, and his mercy. Verses 8 and 9, the end of it all here in Hosea. Just zero us in then on this awesome, holy God who loves this way freely. All who will come to him. And it zeroes us in on, on the need that, that all people have to come to him. Israel's been anchoring their confidence to idols. Israel's been entrusting their, their hope and their peace to the work of their own hands. And God says, what, what have I to do with idols? This is, this is absolutely contrary to the way I design things to work. Don't trust the idols. Don't trust the work of your hands. Don't trust the things of this world. Don't anchor your hope to what you can do or what the world can do for you. It is I who answers and looks after you, God says. I am like an evergreen cypress. An evergreen is a tree that's evergreen, right? It, it doesn't turn brown. It's full of life no matter what the season. God says, you come to me, and from me will come your fruit. And then verse 9, simply and very clearly, very plainly, exhorts all human beings to heed this wisdom that's summed up in this last chapter and this whole book. Whoever's wise, let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So, you know who needs to heed the words of Hosea and come to God and draw near to God so that he can draw near to them and, 
all of the fullness of his unconditional free love and mercy and grace? Everyone, every single human being, all of us, without exception. God, God has drawn near to us, has he not? In the person of the only begotten Son, who is incarnate in human flesh in a, in a manger in Bethlehem. He came to us as a fragile human baby, born in a, a water trough that cattle drank out of. He came to us in the form of a servant. He came to us to heal us, like he says he will do here in verse 4. He came to heal us by his own wounds suffered on the cross, Isaiah 53 says. He came to us to shed his own blood. He came to us to turn away God's wrath, as he says he will do here. He came to us to love us freely. and to be, We didn't initiate this. He came to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did it. He came to us to give us life and to give it abundantly, to raise us up to newness of life in Christ Jesus, to give us the freshness of, of being made new creations in him, to root us and ground us firmly in the imperishable life of Christ, to revive us, to revitalize us, to invigorate us, and cause us to flourish by his grace in growing fruitfulness to him. Who needs to come to God? Everybody does. Listen to me, if you haven't, and there are those of you who probably haven't, if you have not come to God through faith in Christ Jesus, then you have run away from him after your own way. And whatever you think of your own way and whatever you're looking for it to get you in this world, it will only lead you to destruction, and I mean eternal, everlasting destruction, and you need to come home. You need to return to the Lord who made you in his image. You need to draw near to him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to know that no matter what you've done, he will not cast you out if you come to him. Paul shouts it in 2 Corinthians 6, quoting Isaiah 49. Now is the favorable time. Now is the time where God is having favor on sinners and wanting them to come home to him. Now is the day of salvation. It won't last forever. There is coming a day when Jesus will return, and when he does, he will bring the fullness of God's wrath to consume all sin and unrighteousness and purge it all from this world. And if you have not come, that will include you. And on that day, when he comes in judgment, it will be too late for you to come to him for salvation. And no one knows when that day is. No one knows when that hour is of his return. Could be any minute. You don't know. What you know is until it comes, now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Now, not later, is the time to come to him. To find everlasting rest in the fullness of his love and mercy and grace. And to say to him, I don't want to trust this world anymore. I don't want to trust the work of my hands anymore. I don't want to trust me anymore. I want you to take my sin away from me. And wash me and cleanse me. And robe me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then if that's, if, if you've, if that's already happened to you. If you've already done that then give praise to God because the only reason you came to him is because he drew near to you first. It's only because he gave you the faith to come home. It's only because he found you in the wilderness of your sin and allured you by the power of his gospel, of his unconditional love like he promises to do here in Hosea. And, and now that he's done that, if that's you... You've been allured, you've been drawn by the Father, and so come to him through faith in Christ. Now all of us who say that about our lives and who know that to be true of our lives, we need, you and I need to keep coming. You don't just come to God once. You don't just repent of sin once. It's your whole life and it's a lifestyle. 
We need all of us to keep drawing near in full assurance that when we do, He will draw near to us and refresh us and revitalize us and cause us to flourish with that same love that will not ever let us go and that will keep refreshing us and keep making us stand more and more firm like a a cedar in Lebanon or a, a redwood tree in the midst of Big Basin, helping us bear fruit more and more for his glory. A lot of Christians wonder, I hear a lot of Christians asking why they're not growing. They're waiting to have some desire for God, and, and, and it, they, they just feel, they feel like their desire for God, their desire for holiness is just really, really weak and feeble and anemic. And they wonder, why, why am I struggling so much against sin? Why is my striving for holiness so unfruitful? Probably because they won't come to Him regularly, daily, continually in unceasing prayer, in constant abiding in His Word, in regular worship and fellowship with the people of God who can hold us all accountable and help us grow together and sharpen us like iron. Regularly being transformed by the renewing of our minds because they're not drawing near to Him so that He would draw near to them with the mercy and the grace that they need every single day to flourish because they don't think they need that grace and mercy. Well, what happens to plants that don't get watered enough? We went on vacation once and somebody didn't water poor Wendy's plants enough. Guess what happened? They didn't flourish. They withered. They didn't become prolific. They bore less blossoms and fruit. What happens to people who don't eat enough food? What happens to people who don't eat enough nourishing food? Do they thrive? Or do they become feeble? So what do you expect to happen if your spiritual life is not one of continually drawing near? If you're not pleading with God in continual prayerfulness to change you, strengthen you, cleanse you, remove sin from you, help you, heal you, make you thrive. If you're not abiding in him, if you're not constantly consuming the true food and drink of his living active word so that it can regularly transform your life by the renewing of your mind. If you're not letting his word dwell richly in you. If you're not coming to him and communing with him who says, from me your fruit comes. What do you think is going to happen? Do you expect to flourish in fruitfulness anyways? Do you expect to be spiritually refreshed anyways or to be strong and stable and firm in your faith in the midst of life's storms anyways? Listen, come to Him. Even though you haven't been, come to Him. Even though you feel unworthy or ashamed or guilty or afraid or uncertain or unmotivated or or whatever. I get it, I know. Trust me, if you come, He will not cast you off. He will shed that love abroad in your heart. In the most magnificent mystery in the universe, the eternal, invisible, immortal, almighty God has drawn near to us as a fragile baby in a manger, king of kings, born of a virgin, lord of lords in human vesture, clothed with our frailty, acquainted with sorrow and suffering, and grief he drew near to us. That commands our attention, commands our homage, commands our reverence, our devotion, commands our trust. So that when he says, won't you draw near to me? Because this is, what, this is how I drew near to you, we would. We would draw near with full confidence that as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Say amen. Father God, would you use this book powerfully in our lives to show us the realities in all of its horrid detail of the the sinfulness of sin that remains in us. And most importantly, God, would you then point us to the great love that you are, to the great love that you freely give and have given in Christ Jesus. 
And Father, if there be any person here today who stubbornly has not wanted to come to Jesus yet, who has said, I don't think I can trust him, I don't think I need him, I think I've got this, I think I, I should be able to do this all on my own, I don't think I deserve him, I don't think I'm worthy of him, Father, would you compel them just to come? And for those of us who have come, because you have drawn us unto yourself, Father, would you fill us with confidence and grace to keep coming and drawing near to you and being filled with your grace that you might take sin away from us and that you might make us righteous and that you might make us continue to stand firm and that you might make us continue to grow and thrive in fruitfulness for your kingdom. So, Father, be pleased and be praised, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.